Mountain Wellness, optimizing human performance to extend longevity for mountain athletes. All right, here we go. What up, mountain athletes and outdoor adventurers? Welcome to another episode of the Mountain Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Reed, and I'm joined, as always, with my mountain brother, Mr. Mike Mahina. What's going on, bro? Oh, California to Montana. Special guest today. Dude, we finally got some rain. Woke up to some thunderstorms. The uh, fall's moving into Montana. So I'm stoked, man. We, we, needed, uh, we needed it, man. It's been so freaking smoky here. Oh, that's right. You guys have been getting all the smoke. Yeah, no, the smoke's been here as well. Um, yeah, it's just the whole state is covered right now in California with smoke. Yeah, our first responders, man, the, the fire crews have been working just tirelessly around here um, all mm. across the state, and it, it really affects the entire community. I know uh, my mother-in-law, she has a restaurant here in town, Mike, you know, and um, they, uh, every year, they, you know, they, they put meals together for the firefighters out in the field, um, and then we'll prepare lunch or uh, dinners and stuff like that, but it's been... It's just been nonstop. It's, it's been, been really ongoing. cool to see. This, yeah. Yeah, it's been nonstop. But it's always cool to see the community coming together. because, uh, you know, all of our our departments, fire departments are volunteer outside of the state uh services. Um so it really does take a community. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago though, I mean, when I flew out there we were we were dealing with the smoke and work and, and fires and the whole thing. So yeah, it's been ongoing for a while. Yeah, we, it was interesting because when you came out, we had this really bizarre weather. I mean, it was, it's been even, uh, you know, right now up until, well, yesterday it was 90 degrees, and but it's been hot, dry, and smoky, which is like the worst for any outdoor recreation. But when you came, it was, uh, we got a little bit of rain and it dropped, uh, the weather dropped quite the temperature significantly, but I'm welcoming it. This is like the first winter in a while. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be nice that first snowfall. The air, the air is looking forward to that clean, crisp air again. And, you know, Montana has, even though it's 20 degrees outside, it's so dry here and the sun is, is warm. It, it's, I love that feeling. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm starting to now think about trips in the summertime and, literally planning around fires to get in in early in the season into the backcountry or late late season which is yeah it sucks man i'm sure uh some of our our listeners you guys have had to cancel some of your trips i i know california shut down all of its national parks right yeah yeah no that that's got to be tough on people you're right they plan their whole vacation for months around a trip and then it's like yeah you're not vacation and training that's what i was thinking about too you know our listeners are (laughs) you know they're they're listening to us and you know you guys are uh into a lot of what we're into obviously that's why you're listening and everybody's eating butter don't don't let that fitness and and training go to waste you know it's still general preparedness and yeah as winter comes in and fall comes get get your sights on another trip speaking of which uh first responders search and rescue um why don't Mm. you go ahead and introduce today's guest i know we got 
this is special to you. I know you you were hunting tirelessly to try to find uh, this guest or someone that would really speak well on the topic. Um, so who do we got, Mike? Uh, so it, it is a very interesting topic, and I was looking for someone in Search and Rescue to give us some insight into the the inner workings of Search and Rescue, how it's done, um, and some of the things that you would rarely ever hear or talk about. And so... Uh, through my uh, searching f- through Yosemite, some of the one of the busiest uh, SAR operations in the world, uh, I came across Moose Mutlow, and of course the name right away I was like Moose. Okay, so what? This is <laughs> it's, it's related to Swiftwater. I think I found him in the Swiftwater Rescue. So he's he's basically got a background. His I would say almost his whole life he's been he's had a a big desire to serve. Um, that that's kind of his. I think it just resonates. It's been resonating to soul since he's been a child, but uh, he's got 30 years of rescue emergency services with incident command and training as a guide out in the, in the wilderness. He's done instruction in the grant in the Tetons and Yosemite, Smoky mountains, Yellowstone national parks. He's just extremely well-rounded with a lot of experience at, at an in first responding and something I never heard of, which is a family liaison officer. And we're going to dig into what that is and what a special, tremendous responsibility that is. Yeah, I'm excited to have, uh, well, I shouldn't say excited because I'm just anxious to have a, a better understanding of what that role is because we think of search and rescue. You know, I have little experience in search and rescue back when I was 18. Um, but I never had, never thought about the, the, the mental health or the psychology aspect of it, um, and actually dealing with the family during, uh, the emergency or the rescue or the search or having to deliver, um, news that a family member or a friend has deceased, Mm. um, and the role that, uh, that individual, um, has to, to play or be is, heavy just thinking about it so um, well yeah yeah on top of working for the the most badass one of the most badass search and rescue departments in the country so well should be a I, good one i think you know uh and this was unplanned that it was when we're recording today on the anniversary of of uh 9-11 so yeah, 9/11. it couldn't couldn't be a better time to really talk about mental health and not only from the civilian side, but what the first responders uh, go through. Yeah. I think that's an important subject. Yeah, because we know we uh, we have a lot of veterans that listen to us. Um, Mike Elliott, one of our uh, previous uh, guests on the show, and one of my athletes. Um, we just uh, and also a provider for Impact Montana, a veteran nonprofit here in in Montana. We work really close with in the current state of Afghanistan. Um, yeah, it couldn't be in better timing to have a discussion around this. Yeah. And so, uh, last thing is we're going to be talking about the stress continuum, which is uh, a very interesting subject because it can apply to all of us. It's not just about first responders or, or civilians. Uh, it's uh, something I think that is a valuable tool for us as we, as we dig through this. So. Yep. And as always, um, all the resources and everything we talk about will be in the show notes. 
for you guys to link up with. And uh, yeah, so should we go have a conversation with Moose? Yeah, let's get into it. Moose, welcome to the Mountain Wellness Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me today. Well, we got to address it. Um, that doesn't sound like an American accent. <laughs> no, it, far from it. I'm, uh, I'm definitely a transplant. Uh, I'm English, a very proud Brummy from Birmingham, right in the middle of England. Uh, my soccer team is Aston Villa. Um, I, I've been traveling, been on the road for a long time, and ended up in the United States. So growing up, never quite the in, accent. Uh, <laughs> right so you yeah. grew up in the the uk um uh, not a lot of big mountains in uh in that area correct? no but it's it, it has a, a, a i feel very lucky because i had a real introduction to the outdoors early on mm. yeah through my parents and through activities in britain like there's a the only way you escape britain is by getting to the ocean and sailing somewhere. <laughs> right. And so we're a nation firmly rooted in water activities. Yeah, so yeah. I was out canoeing as a kid. My dad built a sailboat in the backyard, like a little dinghy. Um, <laughs> and we would sail that on the local reservoir. There was a rowboat there. I love rowing. And then as I went through sort of getting older and becoming an adult, I started working at summer camps and traveling in Europe and and then in 88 I I just kind of left hmm. and went to Australia and went back with some fours between the states and Africa and back into Europe and and then got status in the United States and I've stayed here working in and around wilderness based programming environmental education and search and rescue. So it sounds like your dad and uh, kind of instilled the sense of adventure early on. And uh, so what was the first thing um, that like, what pulled you towards the mountains? What was it? A, in, was it a sport? Was it uh, something you read in a magazine, saw on TV? What was that first initial pull? There's a, on, on TV in Britain, as I was growing up, they would have every once in a while, a very boring TV show of someone climbing <laughs> like over hours. Wow. They were talking about, and now, and now we're going back to the old man Ahoy. And this is where Chris Bonington is. And he's made like a pitch, uh, advance on the route and there's no drones. It's long shot camera. And we're, yeah. Like, yeah, we're like, Ooh, this is exciting. And, um, and so the, the climbing thing you kind of knew about, um, and the mountains in Britain are kind of interesting. We went to the Lake District a lot, which is in the northeast of, Sc uh, northeast of England. Yeah. And they are very high. Like the highest mountains, 3,900 feet, Scarfell Pike. Mm. But the weather, woo! you got to be ready for some weather. You get really good at dealing with the weather. Uh. And we used to wear cagoules. You don't see them over here very much. But like they're basically plastic bags with a drip line right at your knee level. Yeah. So you're nice and toasty up top, and then you're soaking wet at the bottom. <laughs> and, it, and so you get sort of really good at suffering. Oh. Well, that's like a poncho. Wouldn't that be similar to a poncho? But that's what we use here. It is. The poncho has a vent out the <laughs> right. This thing is sealed this up. Is like it's like a giant plastic oh, okay. tube. And it was... And it wasn't high performance, but you, the nice thing about it is when you, just as you're getting hypothermic, you could sit and pull it over your knees <laughs> and create like a heat tent. Yeah. 
but they are yeah so yeah i had an early introduction to the mountains and then and then sort of branched from like i, I led wilderness trips in australia and in the united states a lot and a lot yeah. of that was combinations of climbing uh backpacking and a water component yeah and, I, and as my knees started to hurt like it's hard mm. it's a, it's a to guide 200 plus days a year and have that turnover and and it was a time before lightweight packs. So you're carrying ridiculous right. loads. You're like, oh, we'll, t- we'll take a library out with us. Let's take these four <laughs> books that weigh eight pounds that somebody might read. I mean, it was totally insane. Um, and you you just got really good at carrying 70 and 80 pounds, yep. which is nuts. So wow. your body breaks. Yeah. Yeah. So then you, end, then you end up in management. Um, <laughs> totally. So that's kind of my, my trajectory. Yeah, no, back in the day, it was Whitney, Mount Whitney. Uh, my buddies that went up Whitney back in the you know, 80s, it was like 60, 70 pounds, and that's what they carried. And it was just grueling for those guys. I went, I went on a uh, – I have friends who are rangers, and one of the rangers was like, you've got to come on a, on, on a trip. This is probably like seven years ago, eight years ago. And I was like, I'm kind of done with the backpack thing. I'll like do a hike every once yeah. in a while and I'll go on long expeditions on boats. Be great. But like, I just couldn't handle the weight. And they're like, no, try this lightweight gear. And I <laughs> couldn't believe you could go out for five, six, seven days with 30 pounds of gear and food. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, and so that was a good, good game changer. Yeah. Makes a big difference. Yeah. So was it, uh, the the mountaineering stuff was it climbing or was there any uh, any one particular pursuit that you really gravitated towards uh before you got into um the uh, being in in the organized side of things uh was it Uh, was was there a recreational pursuit yeah i mean like i climbed as I, i climbed through my my high school climbed um and then I went to some survival schools in the north of Scotland and oh, cool. did climbing, climbing with that, and that was that was great. Yeah. And then, and then, outdoor education, sort of mid eighties uh, in Britain, didn't have a lot of certifications. It was awesome. It was a time when right. your personal experience outweighed your pieces mm, of paper. Yes. And so. So you could go and say, I've done this route, this route, this, and it would mean something. And they'd be like, oh, it kind of sounds like you've got, your, you've got it together. Yeah. And, you'd, and your assessment was based through your personal experience. So I did a lot of uh, – there's a, there's a poor pet sold who was one of the main players with uh, National Outdoor Leadership School, has a quote that says, bad experiences lead to good judgment. <laughs> totally. Mm. And – and yeah. that was my personal development is a lot of things that in hindsight right. were young male adventure. Whoa, I'm going to hang out here without really realizing I have a bit of an epic, but yeah. that built this really rounded risk management thing that I could then extend professionally. Yeah. yeah because uh, those experiences are burnt in. Like when you have a bad experiences, they stick with you. And so that, you know, I, I could understand the, how you would be able to build out of those personal experiences. We, we, I was working in the south of France and I was actually a sailing instructor at the time and the sailing program I was meant to be working at didn't open. So I ended up as a canoe guide and I had some water experience, but not formal guiding. 
I ended up in the south of France and I had this amazing summer and I went back the next year. It was great. But one of the things we did is we took a giant fiberglass canoe into a cave system and we paddled it in on this really big pool. We took it through the entrance area and put it like on this big pool. And then we free dove into the next chamber. And it was totally nuts. There were two of us. It was me and Pat Bell. (laughs) And Pat was like a little bit more experienced. I think he might actually have been doing an outdoor education degree. And somehow he was like the leader. And we got off the boat and we were like, okay, we're going to sump it. We're just going to go underwater. We're going to swim in mentally count 10 seconds and come back out <laughs> and we sort of broke into this next chamber and was swimming out like Woo, this is great totally nuts like no we thought we were being safe and we survived right. but looking back yeah. on it we kind of you're kind of hanging out there a bit no it's so true i remember my first experience snowboarding in jackson hole i was 15 years old <laughs> it was a it was a high school trip and i grew up in southern california and literally like they used to do these high school it was called swat they there was this this company that would basically market to all the you know a majority of the southern california high schools and it was like seven days in jackson hole wyoming for like 300 bucks we took these charter buses out there it was like a 21 hour bus drive but i remember (laughs) always oh it was so bad with high school kids you can only imagine how rowdy that bus was and uh, but i remember you know snowboarding was my passion and i remember hearing that jackson hole was like backcountry that was that's that was like you know the lower 48 that was the place to go backcountry riding and i show up to the mountain and i start asking what looks like local guys you know like hey what you know where do you go where do you go backcountry no gear whatsoever no beacon no shovel no <laughs> it was literally like and and fine, no one's everybody's looking at us like oh you punk rock kids like they're just basically ignoring us and finally I saw a uh, a ski patrol dude and I was like so where do you guys go like where's backcountry riding around here and he's get kind of giving us that look like no you're not like you're not supposed to do that and finally after pressing he's like yeah you might want to go to the top of this chair and kind of you know take this track down the other side but you didn't hear it from me and we did it was an amazing trip and i did some you know riding out of bounds but looking back now and some of the situations that we ended up in i'm just like man we're we're super fortunate like it could have totally gone the other way and i had a similar experience because in europe skiing is kind of a class thing Mm. like rich people go and go skiing like right. and so so you tended to be like ah rich people what have yeah. to do with them whereas actually skiing was kind of fun so i came to to america and i'd never skied before and somebody took me skiing in north carolina um which is like they have ski slopes in north carolina <laughs> or they used to um and <laughs> and it's just skiing like bulletproof ice and i went twice <laughs> and then we went to then we went to yellowstone right. And a friend of ours had a cabin just outside Yellowstone, and we skied steep backcountry chutes on skinny, like Telluride, Telly, Telly gear. Right. And and I and I'd ski all day, and I'd crash all day. Yeah. But we, you know, you'd be out there, you'd hear these enormous whoops, and I'd be like, "What's that?" <laughs> People would be like, "That's bad." <laughs> and then, and I remember another time that we were like, we didn't have them, we didn't have the sort of organization to have peeps. So I trailed a rope. It was real old school. I had like 30 feet 
of string tied around, you know, tied around my waist and I trailed up on the theory it would float to the top during an avalanche. <laughs> and, and, and that, that was the safety. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It was like, it was great. No, I mean, you like, felt yeah. safe and that's what you really needed. I mean, the psychology is, hey, this is going to work for me. Whether it would or not was almost irrelevant. You felt like it was going to work for you. So you were good. Right. And like, and a lot of times it's almost what you don't know saves you. Like yeah. I was, I, we were racing a boat from the south coast of England across to the coast of France and the English Channel is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. It's just got boats going up and down. Oh, it. We're on a 28-foot <laughs> racing boat. And it's the first time I've raced across the channel, and I'm really excited, and I'm going to be up on the weather, weather side like all night as we sort of try and race the fleet across. And the electrics went out. So we had no navigation lights, no navigation aids. And the skipper was this guy called Steve, who was a Royal Navy second lieutenant on weapon systems. He would get flown out to ships and check their weapon systems. And he was very, he was a giant of a man. He was very calm. Yeah. And I was just happily oblivious uh, that we were sailing through this incredibly dangerous situation with the boat pitching and getting smacked by waves. And we, we arrived at our takeout and mm. I didn't think anything more about it. But actually, it was incredibly dangerous. Right. Yeah. And he, he, but he did something remarkable in that he didn't get he didn't have room to panic he had to, he was the captain and he gave us all the information we needed to make us perform but yeah. he didn't give us so much information that i was like i'm gonna die like i remember yeah. that really clearly like uh, i wish i could tell steve that steve passed away mm. a few years ago but like that was an incredible gift to a young mm -hmm. man to have somebody really pitch the lesson well in survival. I, re I remember that vividly, vividly. Right. Cause now in hindsight, you were able to self reflect on that years later and be like, wow, that was outstanding leadership skills. And you oh. saw how his wisdom, he was like, all right, well, we can't instill anxiety in the young bucks here, but we gotta, we have a serious situation and we need to, to handle it. That's he was uh, reckoning. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, go ahead. He, I mean, there's this tidal race that goes up the English Channel, and so you're fighting the wind, the tide. You've got no fixed points to be able to reference off, and you're trying to hit an island off the French coast. And he said at some, at, when the sun came up, if we could see the island, then we were going to go to it. And if it wasn't, then we were going to turn around because we didn't want to, we didn't want to oh. risk of being further out. And the sun came up and bang, Jersey Guernsey were right there. Wow. He, he, wow. he dead reckoned us onto the island. Phenomenal. Incredible seamanship. Well, and I think Corey and I have found that in different uh, pursuits into the backcountry with guides at different times where we would get into <laughs> yeah. a kind of a hairy situation, but that guide would be so calm and collective and like, well, here's our option guys. And, and that kept the rest of us calm and like, okay, there's not, there's not a problem because the leader doesn't see a problem, right? If the leader sees a problem, we all see the problem. Maybe that's part of, part of a, yeah, that's, and we had, you, you'll appreciate this story. So Mike and I, and, we did a multi-pitch climb in Yosemite and we climbed with the world-class guide, Matt Robertson. Um, and as yeah. you know, you, it's to, to guide in Yosemite. Um, we were working with paradox sports, so they have a, a permit yeah. to, to do some, you know, probably familiar with paradox. Um, 
But as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm totally blind and I'm also a, a right leg amputee below the knee. And so it was my first time doing a multi-pitch climb. I had minimal experience climbing at that point anyways. Um, but we did find ourselves in a situation where we were really relying on Matt's leadership because I, uh, on the fourth pitch, well, it was actually on the third pitch, there was a rescue going on and it was, uh, I don't know what, four years ago, Mike, somewhere yeah, yeah about four years ago. And it was when the fires were real bad up in Yosemite yeah. and it was just this nasty, heavy smoke day. We were fully exposed um, the entire climb. So the sun was beating on us. Yeah. We got into a situation where we were, we were starting to get dehydrated and we were hanging out on this, you know, the third pitch while this rescue was going on. So we had five pitches to climb. Well, we made it to, you know, number four and sun was going down and, you know, we had to make a decision. Okay. Do we, do we, do we take off and climb this fifth pitch or do we pull out? And like, at that point relying like i'm so grateful that i was with matt robertson because you know it's i i didn't know the best decision to make at that time but i just was able to mike and i both like hey we're both exhausted we're tired we know that that's when bad decisions are made um so let's leave it up to you what's the best and safest decision do you think and we ended up pulling out um which was probably the most dangerous part (laughs) of that climb itself was actually you know getting out of there but yeah it was uh pretty uh you know self-reflecting later just being grateful we were had great leadership and and a good guide well i did a uh a long climb an alpine route in in zimbabwe on the border of mozambique this is this is decades ago and we sort of hiked in and i did what all good climbing partners do in the parking lot is you shout out to the neighboring car do you want to do a climb and if anybody (laughs) says yes they're qualified (laughs) that's the way to find a climbing partner (laughs) yeah completely like and it was this i mean we're like way over on the eastern side of zimbabwe on the mozambique border in chiamani mani and the guy next to us turns out to know a friend of mine in australia oh man right and we're like oh my god okay we're ready so we go off and do this peak and as we leave the guy in the sort of hostel says hey heads up that pass we call skull pass and whether they call it skull pass i don't know it might have been just the western to make us aware what's going on (laughs) he said there's a history of (laughs) of a minefields along there and every so often somebody gets injured because of mines along this route no way so we're like oh we're gonna be okay because because at 14 i had done i'd been in a cadet force in which we had done an anti-personnel mine workshop and like Mm. to recognize anti-tank mines and anti-personnel mines it's like the english private school system it's messed up and i was like oh i've got this it'll be fine classic overconfidence so we climb up and out of Chimani Mani, and it was like the Iger sanction because people were watching us and then the mists came in and we just disappeared. Oh. And it turned into this total epic. Like there was some like flaring undercling that was like probably five, four. It wasn't that hard, but it was way up there. And I sort of started moving to get into the blade uh, stance. And I heard this zip noise. Oh. And it was, and then this distinct metallic noise of a piece of gear hitting the stitch plate. We were on stitch plates at the time. And I shouted down, is that my piece of gear? And as I said, that the second and third piece pulled. 
so i had no oh. gear on this pitch length and i had this sickening feeling like actually what's gonna what's gonna kill me is a fall and not the mind <laughs> right and you were like oh. it's so ironic that we're in this sort of dangerous situation it's gonna be a five four underclaim that's gonna finish me off <laughs> we sort of finished it up we got to the peak there was no view and then we started trying to figure out how to get off on the other side and we'd walk down ridges just on the rock and you could see the trail and we'd be like yeah. oh it's too far to run across that open ground and so we went up and down for hours to get close to the trail trail accident and then oh debated about how to run across the open ground oh my god <laughs> do we split up or do we go together and we were so hungry and dehydrated we just were like ah! and just <laughs> ran <laughs> and then dove onto the trail and we're like we're alive um oh, which was a good feeling after actually not a particularly good route yeah. um that's the bit i really remember pulling gear and jumping on a trail and embracing the dirt i was so happy <laughs> it's funny the conversations that start happening because we actually mike was filming that particular climb and there's a there's a clip where we're both hanging out on i don't know second third fourth pitch and we're like dude when I get home, I'm just going to have the biggest glass of water ever. Like, that's all I want. Is all we could talk about was water. That's right. The whole time it was like, I'm so thirsty. Like, you know when you're dehydrated. I mean, you know when you're out of water, when you're hurting. Uh, oh, it was so bad. And, and I love <laughs> listening back because it's like, it's it's survival. We don't even realize how we're, serious it is. Yeah. Like, we're having this casual conversation. Oh, and it's, I, I had a, we had a route, we had a, a trip in Australia where you do these group trips where you're solo instructing massive groups in the eighties. It was like, I think the largest group I instructed was 28 people with me and a teacher. Like it was wow. massive. It was like m moving a squadron through the, sure. through the, the eucalyptus. And we got to a food drop that's miles out and they'd spilt gasoline over the entire food drop for like oh. four day, three or four day river descent. And so everything was oh tainted with gas. So I had to go through and open every bag and like sniff it and be like, ah, it kind of smells gassy, <laughs> but you know, and then sort of split everything. And the only thing that didn't have gas on it was applesauce because it was in a can. Ah. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so we'd, we'd, we'd eat like half rations with this sort of gasoline oh. touch. And then at the end, we'd all like, I'd be like, okay, everybody, here's a spoonful of apples, you know? And we'd like <laughs> di I dish out the apples to all the students. And they'd be like, mm, it's so great. It doesn't <laughs> it taste of gasoline. Like <laughs> yeah. And people would be really excited about all the apples coming out. Yeah. I don't, I would love to meet that crew again because I think that all they would remember <laughs> is the applesauce. That's all they'd remember. <laughs> totally. Oh. All right. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I'm curious how. Mm -hmm. At what point did you get involved with search and rescue? Because um, that's you know that's uh, making a transition, or you know we've established you definitely found your love for the mountains and really enjoyed adventuring. Um, but where did, uh, where did you start getting involved with search and rescue? So search and rescue probably started when I was very little. Mm. So when we were kids, we'd go to this, uh, Welsh coastal town called Aberdiffy, which is, uh, right on the West coast. And it's, it has a lifeboat station. 
and we would catch crabs off the edge of the the dock and you'd look at the lifeboat station and lifeboats in britain are an amazing thing it's an entirely volunteer force that go out at the worst possible weather and do these amazingly heroic things and they're very ordinary people i kind of get emotional talking about it because it's it's the best of of service Mm. and so they have this mythical heroic quality and you as a kid i know i was impacted by seeing that boat Hmm. yeah and that idea of helping others and then as it got older i'd sort of in the in you would you would end up being in the on the river being part of rescues you'd be if you were climbing you'd end up helping people if you were Mm. i'd I spent some time in the Lake District, and we get called out to help Mountain Rescue every once in a it's while. Sort of a volunteer force, then you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this so tribe, you sort of get pulled right? in, and then when when you get to the states, it's it uh, the states. It's not as it's not as big on pieces of paper, right? So my experience of America has been, oh, you think you can do that? Yeah, go give it a go. It's very different from a lot of other countries. And so your ability to get involved in these situations, particularly if you've got technical skills, ramps up real Mm. quick. And so I went from kind of assisting county rescue groups with our technical team at Outward Bound in North Carolina to actually getting more on the technical training end when I started working in American National Parks. Mm. And that, that's been the last 20, 22 years has been working in around National Park Rangers and then increasingly moving from operational into training. And so right now I helped, I helped to train the Swift Water team in Yosemite. And then I, I do other trainings around park modules in other na- Western National Parks. And I, wow. I like the, my job, my main job is uh, I'm the senior project director for an, a nonprofit, Nature Bridge, and I'm the primary person trying to build a new school in Yosemite National Park. Like it's a new, it's a home for young people to learn about the natural world. And then I get given to the National Park to help on search and rescues. And so... In my main job, it's many, many years to completion. I've been in, in this project for more than 15 years, gradually by a sort of process of attrition, achieving things. Whereas search and rescue, you get a group and you're like, our job is to find that person. Yeah. And our end is whether you find them or you run out of clues and it gets suspended, but there's closure. And that's the reason I've stayed so deeply connected to search and rescue because it's working around people to a common goal where the focus isn't me or you it's this person who needs a hand hmm. and yeah. that's yeah. A, that's wonderful in our society now to have sort of an honorable selfless goal wow i see that i can see it yeah and, and your love for service was super evident when you just described what happened to you as a youngster like that how you saw that and, and it's it stuck with you and so you're you found it here in the states and you yeah. continue that act of service and want to be able to serve like that that's that's incredible and there's there's thousands of people across the united mm-hmm. states that work in purely volunteer positions in the worst possible weather 
and go out when their pager or their beeper or their phone goes yeah. off without an, an, any other thought. It's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. All these missions that run that people are just trying to help. And it's it's I think it's easy to feel sad and down about things with you know what we face in the world today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what's gonna what's gonna solve it is this sort of generosity of spirit. And it's there. We just have to tap into it. You know, people are people are extra can be quite extraordinary do extraordinary things yet be very ordinary. And completely selfless is what I think the act is too. It's like it's this is yeah you know, searching for yeah. someone or trying I, to save someone. I've seen that here in Helena. So I mentioned I grew up in Southern California and my senior year of high school I was in a phenomenal fire explorer county program with Ventura County Fire Department and I would leave school at lunchtime and I'd go to the fire station and the the station I was with a crew you, you basically you become one with the crew and I ran EMS calls structure fires search and rescue and at a young age it was like I still carry those not only the lessons but just the the act of service and just being uh with a team and uh working together <laughs> towards something common and that's totally selfless and it's pretty amazing and but what i've uh, what i've noticed or what i've seen in helena it's completely a volunteer dep- uh, fire department and one of my clients is actually the fire chief here and he was talking about the challenges of you know it's not like a well-funded county fire department where you can hire the best of the best and you have all these recruits that are you know applying from all over the country it's like you have to deal with what you have and um but then i think about some of the you know it's no different here than it is in in the town i grew up in you still have the same calls the same type of issues that happen but working with limited resources and i just have so much respect for volunteer fire departments Mm. um especially not being paid you know it's uh, they're putting their lives on the line and you know risking a lot themselves do you remember when you did that program sort of the aspect of mentorship and apprenticeship that you served as a young person with sort of an older person watching what you're doing helping you figure out how to do it right do you remember who that person was oh yeah there was yeah there was um uh, a few individuals that had quite an impact on me um that i'm still pulling you know pulling lessons from 20 years later Mm. but uh, it's i would say the biggest part of that or the biggest thing was what you mentioned of just being on a team um and knowing each one has a as a job as a duty as a responsibility uh but you're also you're going on a call and that the person on the other end of that is it, it it's might be the worst situation they've ever been in their entire life. So, uh, which is actually a great segue because, um, you do family liaison work, correct with your job now. And that to me, I was, you know, as Mike and I were researching, getting ready for this, this episode, um, that struck me because I'm like, man, that by far, especially now I got two boys. Um, so everything, 
uh, do you have kids, Moose? No, I don't. Yeah. Um, everything is a little bit different when you hear, you know. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, everything's different with kids, especially growing up as an adventure action sports athlete. Um, but what is, man, that's just, that's got to be a really tough position to be in um, having to deliver news or manage the, you know, the emotional side of it. Can you share a little bit about that yeah. aspect of your job? So, so the family liaison officer job, it, it, it spans, it has a lot of interpretations and, and the role that I play in search and rescue uh, and within the park service has been within the hierarchy of the incident command system, which is this hierarchical uh, different levels of responsibility and it's very clear what each division chief's in charge of and what your roles are and how you report into the incident commander mm-hmm. and the family liaison bridges straight out of the incident commander's oversight and you're the conduit for all information that flows from the family to the command and from the command to the family so you're this emotional bottleneck mm. <laughs> and you're not seeking to control it. Right. You're what you're doing is you're essentially choreographing a traumatic experience or a, a questioning time of trying to figure out what's happening and where somebody is, so that people feel on the family side they're treated with respect and honesty and in a timely fashion mm-hmm. and from mm-hmm. a point of care. And then on the instant command that you're insulating the operators to be able to focus purely on the mission. So you're feeding information that might be an investigator may have missed when they did an interview about where the person's hunting trip was going to be or where they were going to go snowmobiling. So you're feeding mm-hmm. information back, but you're essentially the agent of the instant command to help shape the narrative in a way that the family can understand what you're doing and why. Mm-hmm. And when I say shape, that isn't like, with bias it, it it's looking at a family in crisis and saying yeah. oh i don't just need to tell them this i need to write it down or wow the parent can't handle this right now who else can i talk to with the parent in the room who can help um help help you through this traumatic experience we aren't grief counselors and we're not we're not trauma specialists mm-hmm. we're we tend to be good communicators who have an intuitive feel for where people are at mm-hmm. and can deal with the emotional load, which is significant. Like, I, Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I would imagine it takes a high level of emotional intelligence, even without formal training. Like that's, uh, that's a lot to take in in a situation like that. Is that. How did you end up in a position like that where did you – you seem like someone that definitely has a, a heart for service. And um, was that something you fell into or did you seek? I When I worked for Outward Bound, I worked for Outward Bound for a, a decade or more than a decade, mm. like 12 years in different countries. Yeah. And that that's outdoor education with a professional development, a personal development component. That's and so there's rad. a lot of facilitation in there and some level of counseling and you deal with, I did courses for people in recovery. I did courses where people have been affected by abuse and violence. I did Vietnam vet courses. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. 
and and so you you're exposed to using the outdoors and experience to open the channels for people to have a, dis a frank discussion yeah that's um, beautiful and hopefully not break them mm. and so i i was actually one of my employees when i was education director at nature bridge in yosemite was going to a family liaison training and she said and bobby said hey you should go to this i think you'd be good at it and i went to a half day training and realized that the experience i'd had as an instructor and a course director and i'd done a little bit of residential social work as well was really good exposure to figuring out how to just be a gentle confident presence when people are faced with really bad stuff mm. And because it, it, it isn't a sought after role, like there aren't people lined up being like, oh yeah, pick me for the worst job. Like when you, when you turn up, all the other search and rescue people kind of move away from you like, okay, the family liaisons arrived. They're going to, they're going to deal mm. with this. But the, but the reality is, I think what I, why I was attracted to it was I like truth. I, I like the, I like the idea that when you have information, you give it to a family. You don't hide it. If you've made a mistake, you fess mm. up. It's, you just throw everything out there. Because how can you be criticized for truth? Hmm. If you've been truthful, that's a good thing. Yeah. So I like the idea of, of, of being a uh, non-advocate, a liaison for truth. And it, 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 you have to find different ways to let people know that their partner, their sibling, their relative, their friend has died. Then passed away. We haven't lost them. They're dead. Mm. And it's cutting through that sort of veneer of discomfort to actually have an undeniable truth. Mm. And if people are going to heal long term, they can't. You, they can't be hiding behind a maybe. They have to know. Right. I see where you're going. I see what you're saying. And so you, yeah. you, if you can help, um, quite, quite often when you're volunteering, you want to do something a little bit different. You know, you want to be like, oh, I want to try this to be a volunteer. And, and I'm a, I've been a, I really think that when, you, when you're volunteering something, you go with your strengths. Hmm. Sure. You go with Absolutely. the thing you're good at. Yeah. Not what you're going to learn or like. Right. Like, ooh, I'm going to get a cool photograph with an elephant. That's great. Um, that's that's useless. But what you could be doing yeah. is is teaching people how to use GIS because you're a GIS right. specialist. Your gifts. So, you align with your gifts and yeah. your talents. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I find it yep. interesting because I, from the, the minute of this podcast, you have been a good-natured, fun person to talk to, and yet you go into these extremely difficult situations and have to balance, as you say, and find the truth and deliver sometimes very hard news. So, how do you how do you balance out that kind of? You see that good nature with your with the difficult times. How do you balance that? I'm just curious. Well, you, you don't dress it up. You don't you don't say things like, "Oh, they're in a better place now," or. <laughs> Uh, all they're at peace. They're not hurting anymore. Like, I think, I think, I think maybe a strength of mine in the role and every family liaison has a different suite of skills. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. there are people who are totally on the other end of, of my personality who are ama absolutely amazing at being family liaison mm -hmm. that they're, they're quiet, they're introverted, but they're phenomenal 
uh, like reaching across the table and touching somebody on a hand and making that connection. Wow. And mm-hmm. I, I think for me, is it's not to pretend. I don't pretend I'm not a good natured kind of fun person. Like I, I'm very. I try to be very genuine with my emotion. So if the if if a if a parent has just had this this terrible news, like uh, there's this there's a noise that I've heard on a number of occasions that a mother makes from deep inside her soul mm. when she hears her child is dead. Mm. It's it's un, it's out of, it's it's out of this world. This noise. I mean, all the hair is going up on the back of my neck. My skin's mm-hmm. tingling right now, like, yeah. and I can feel it. Mm. And and this sort of just emotional renting happens. And I will sit and cry. Like it's miserable. Mm. She's mm. she's got this news. She's kind of on her own. And me and a ranger might be the people who are standing there because they're on a trip together, and. You, you're just human right you don't you don't languish within it you don't sit there for like the next five days ripping your clothes and putting ash all over your head but you you ride the ride that, that they're on this ride and you're you're on it for a set amount of time mm-hmm. and you're on it because you're real yeah you're real you're not you're not this sort of robot automaton that's going to go through a script and be like and now i'll do this and now i'll do this you you're kind of a, you're kind of um, improvising to give right, them uh, what they need. Wow! I would imagine too, not allowing yourself to like reflect too much and be get so emotionally invested on like the the mother, like say the mom son relationship. It's like you don't have this personal connection with them other than the the call that you're on. Because I know even as an 18 year old kid, as a as a fire cadet i saw some stuff that was potentially could have been pretty traumatic for a young kid and i didn't think much of it in the moment but later you know reflecting on i was like man that's um like my first burn victim that i I, a call i went on and she later passed away in the hospital um it didn't in the moment in in the rescue setting up triage doing ems was we were just doing our thing that's what you know, the crew was trained to do. However, after the fire was out and we were doing overhaul and cleanup sitting on the nightstand was a picture of her and her boyfriend or her fiance. And, and that was the moment it was like, Oh dang. Now she just became a real person. So I I feel like, yeah. And I I think that's one of the things is that the family liaison is a transitional role. It's, it's, the way that we we do it and within our jurisdiction is you pick up an assignment mm-hmm. you're going to have a, a, an end date you can sometimes you can see it hours away sometimes you can see it a week away sometimes you know it'll run a bit longer but it ends and then for me i have no more contact with the family after that mm-hmm. because yeah. you've been party to the most traumatic event that they may have in faced their life. in their lives mm-hmm. And to come back in and believe there's a friendship or relationship based out of that, yeah, is is other. Now, now line of duty death is a bit different. Hmm. Like, sure, li- line yeah, of duty is a very very different thing. So, fire departments, police departments, rangers, th- there's a more of a understanding that as a family liaison, you're running the course of that over an extended period because you're the consistent 
reliable contact and they are family they are in your family and so on some of those you have a much more protracted uh assignment and that that's that's a different expectation you have a different level of support on that it's For it's sure. interesting have you heard the term trauma bonding then i'm sure you might have heard that where, where people i haven't heard it but i can guess what yeah, it is pretty but and so I, I think that's interesting on the family side where you say there's this there's this period of time that's going to end and but you've also gone through with them on this ride this this traumatic ride um and so there has to be a strong connection in that moment like you're saying if you're being honest you're being truthful everybody's just being i would imagine mostly honest is transparent as possible all the walls probably come down and you know that that time period is going to end and so that for you that's is that a is that a better way to manage things for your own emotional connection to it all is to, to okay this has to end so oh yeah i mean it's like it's this accelerated intensity mm-hmm. where you you'll have somebody be absolutely non-functional right absolutely grief stricken and then they'll they'll snap to and just tell the funniest story about the person who's <laughs> dead and and i've had situations where i've been laughing out loud because these stories yeah. are so outrageous and we'll be crying at the same time because they're oh, just yeah yeah and so you have this sort of thing but i i'm really careful about when i go on assignment sure. almost within the first day or so i'm like Hey, there's going to be a time somebody else is going to come in on assignment. And, and when we do that, there'll be a clear transition. So you're not left on your own. So I don't become a support mechanism because that's impossible to do long term. Right. So in, in the, right. in, in the national park in the last, I don't know, 15 years ish, I've been family liaison for the best part of 60 fatalities. 60. Wow. Okay. So, so you, no how could you serve a family gotcha with any equality with that level of response it's you can't do you can't honor that so you don't make that commitment sure it sounds like the national park service has come a long ways though in or it sounds like with your input uh, being able to manage this kind of a crisis though well yeah but i I would also say that you've got really good leadership recognizing that the days of toughen it out suck it up deal never existed right those days were like a complete fallacy and a myth and so you've got really good leaders um who have empowered people like me to get more training and to, to build programs and to share knowledge and create a kind of a place where you can get knowledge and then you can frame it to what you need. I would never say the way that I mind is the way to do it. It's a way, right. like 80% of what we do as family liaison is probably shared. Right. And then there's a really big 20% that's just the person and the jurisdiction. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's changed because there's more open discussion about the emotional and mental impacts. And there's more a recognition of what happens with the family. But it's also a recognition that if you keep if you keep responders on the front line, mm. they will get increasingly traumatized. They will increasingly be unable to function and live their lives. 
and an increasing number take their lot take their you know they end up right ending yeah. their lives prematurely mm-hmm. and that happened like three weeks ago we lost somebody you know who through whatever decision making they made mm-hmm. ended their life it's completely tragic and like you see veterans groups talking about mm-hmm, yeah. it with, with young returning servicemen and women and it's, it's just an astronomic rate of of suicide within their ranks mm-hmm. law enforcement vets yeah not not vets veterans veterinarians oh okay oh that yeah so veterinarians yeah. have have access to the drugs and they have uh, and they they deal with death they, um, it's people's animals but they are they have a very difficult job so there's a, there's sort of all these groups covid wards all of these people who have these traumatic experiences we need to legitimize that trauma and be like that is messed up and then figure out a way how we as a peer group help them recognize that and then move them to that higher level of, of care mm-hmm. as a family liaison you're a witness to to this traumatic loss this On this crisis sides, right? and you're uh, and you're honoring it without judgment you're not going oh you shouldn't be crying or you, sh- you there's no judgment right. like there's no book yeah. that says this is how you would deal when your kid dies right right it's 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 not so there's no roadmap so anything they do is okay because it's a re- i always i actually say to people on a number of occasions i've looked to them and they say what do we do and i say this is the shittiest day and they go yeah it That's is shitty yeah. and i'm like like yeah. and they're like yeah what well, and i like right now we just whatever you need to do what what do you want to do like are you eating uh, have you got somewhere to stay tonight? Do you want Do you want spiritual support? Do you want uh, Do you want me to just sit here and watch a movie with you? You know, we, we just so you sort of explore what they need, and you don't you don't put out twenty six things because when you're in crisis or you're mm. traumatized, you can't right. deal with complexity. Right. Yeah. So you give them a binary choice: Do you want to eat, or do you, or, or do you want to go for a walk? And if you're going to go for a walk, let's walk somewhere where you can eat. <laughs> right. Yeah. You need, you, it, like, that's the choreography. Simple. It's like mm-hmm. you're, just, you're trying to build the foundation for someone mm-hmm. to move on. Like, to take and what does that step. look like on the other end with, because I know, I mean, you said you've been on you know, 60 calls related to mortality and had to deliver that news how is that i had to that has to affect you in some way do you have yeah i'm totally messed up like the (laughs) uh i did i did one year when really early in yosemite with yosemite search and rescue where i kind of was a go-to person for for, um fllo part of it was availability part of it's because i had the technical knowledge to really help shape the narrative when you're talking with people and be informed and not make stuff up and i and i i knew a lot of the people who were calling me out like they were my friends and so we had a good relationship in the ic and i did Mm. seven or eight and i ended up going to this barbecue with some fun as a fundraiser for the nonprofit that i work for and i've been dealing with this really involved search for someone and i took a day out to go and do this fundraiser board meeting and i grabbed a beer 
and I was standing next to somebody who'd known me for 20 years and they said, how are you doing? And I just burst into tears and sort of became a gibbering wreck. Mm. And I went, oh, not very well. And then sort of wandered off. Yeah. And yeah, there's like where, where I was at 20 years ago dealing with this and where I'm at now is very different. Mm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is because of tools like the stress continuum that Laura McGladry and the Responder Alliance have really been heavily promoting that helps you and your peers and your family and my, my wife, for instance, to recognize where I'm at in that sort right. of trauma cycle. So you have that support system and understanding like, hey, when you come home, you might have been dealing with something that they maybe don't fully understand emotionally, but just being being there to support you. Because that wasn't a discussion that was around. I mean, I, yeah, that's that's not something that's talked about culturally or has been in the forefront in say the fire department or something like that. It's not like you come back from a call and like, all right guys, let's sit down and like, let's decompress. Let's talk about this. It's kind of, in my experience, it was all the guys kind of went and did their own thing. One guy might've went and worked out. One guy might've went and took a nap. Another guy goes and, you know, starts washing, doing some stuff in the garage. It was interesting. And that was just not, not even realize, realizing it at the time. Now it's kind of just self-reflecting back. Everybody copes different. Um, but, the, but, but the really yeah. important thing there is that to, one of the things that's identified for healthy processing, the, the ability to, to sort of get your brain out of this hyper-aroused mm. sort of survival, oh, what's going on? I can't deal with complexity. Right. One of the things identified is actually con- connections, is community. So in the firehouse... Mm-hmm. Everybody sitting around and having dinner is a really yeah. powerful bonding. And I think hopefully that changes the conversation from a sort of more macho suck it up to more of a, oh, how do I, how do I stay mentally healthy in the long term and yeah. don't do bad things to myself? Mm. Uh, th- there is the idea of the role of community and connection is the most essential thing to health because if you go off and you just exercise and you don't have connections it's not as strong if you go off and drink really heavily mm. and just go asleep you haven't got a connection you've only got it with the alcohol not with the person like all of these pieces uh play a role in actually people having sustainability and longevity in their jobs and their life that- living their life is that part yeah. of the stress continuum training that you're talking about is that part of their approach is that what i'm yeah you're you're sort of looking along the stress continuum from a ready point reacting injured to critical and Mm. and and ready it's essentially the stress continuum came out of work with the u.s marine corps which was looking at combat readiness so platoon commanders could look at it and kind of figure out where they're if they were ready for combat and you could be sort of ready and reacting and be good but then when you get into the critical what we would see now is that when you get to critical, you, your performance drops remarkably and you become, a, in combat, potentially you're actually a problem because you're not going to do the job you've been assigned to do. Mm. Yeah. And and when you get to that end of the, the, the continuum, which goes from green to red, when you're in red, you're a danger not just to yourself but to others because you've, you've lost the... You become helpless. You become sure. hopeless. You can't deal with anything complex. You can't pick, should I have a glass of water or should I have a coffee? You can't deal with that complexity. Got it. And so 
what the stress continuum does for a lay person like me who isn't a trained therapist or counselor it gives me the chance within a group to recognize the signs that are happening and then put supervisors and friends in a position to encourage someone to professional care or to make an decision on a command level that actually that person's so compromised they're not going to go out on the next recovery so interesting i love this yeah and and, and because one of so our it's taking the emotional piece into consideration not just the 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 um the mission or the objective it's like okay let's look at the emotional side of this and have a a a, a process or a system in place with a chain of command to say hey you're not good like maybe take a day off or go talk to someone or uh your community your tribe is here we got you but having a, a leadership in place to to be able to call that is seems like a very important thing it, it and having the having the culture that says no i'm sorry i interrupted that mike oh no no it's okay i just i was just it it struck me when you said it came from the marine corps it started that started to come out of there because one of our close friends with Corey is uh who's been on the podcast is mike elliott former marine and he that's where trauma bonding came from that's where i first heard it and he's very yeah. very articulate about his emotional struggles at times and, and his successes and, and things that, that he struggles with and i think that stress continuum is very very interesting to me i'm gonna i'm definitely gonna want to look into that as as uh, i think that's a fantastic sounds like a good resource it's a great and, and i think the the great thing about it, I've actually got it up on the wall in my office mm. and I can look up at it. It was on the refrigerator until we got a new refrigerator and we can't put magnets on it anymore because it's a really nice refrigerator. Um, but the looking at it and saying, how do you get to green? How do you stay in this uh, place where you can deal with complexity, where you're happy, where you're joyful? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really good reminder. Like this summer with end of COVID and sort of, well, not the end, the latest round of COVID, the COVID yeah. hangover. Uh, we'd had quite a lot of smoke and I, I hadn't been on the river and the river, river recharges me. And so yeah. I was like, Oh, what do I love to do? One of the things that, one of the things that's a measure of if you're in that injured sort of part of the continuum is what did you used to do? I used to go out for fresh tracks in the morning when I was on the ski patrol. Mm -hmm. I used to get out in the river three times a week. I, all those used to sort of fit there. So I was like, oh, I got to get back on the river. So I scheduled being back mm. on the river three days a week and just paddling mm. for 30 minutes in a long, dry, drought-stricken pool <laughs> on the Merced. And I just go backwards and forwards for 30 minutes and just love the sound of the water and the feel yeah. and the balance point. No explanation needed there. We know. Yeah, it's like, yeah. So it's... It, it's right. It's an and, and the other thing about trauma is it's individual. It's it's when you're traumatized, you can't live the life you want to live. Hmm. Right? It's it's like there are these these complications, there are these things that are getting in the way. So you're traumatized, you can't live the life you want to live. The, that's universal. So whether you've been in combat and you've you've done multiple tours and you've lost all your buddies and you're you've got this long-term impact the person sitting next to you had a really bad childhood and then got really let down in a relationship and then lost their job nobody's trauma is meriting more treatment than another one because it's so individual 
So you're actually united in this sort of not being able to live your life that you want to live. And that's where the stress continuum is really good is it can cover all aspects of society and, and, and in a non-judgmental way, way and in a transferable way. Well, I think there's no question about the irony of the fact that we are like a couple days away from the anniversary of 9-11. We're, that's coming up in just a few days. So it's interesting that we somehow got to have this conversation as coming up on one of the probably one of the largest, you know, effects on the United States in terms of first responders and civilians and all of those kind of traumatic events. Yeah. And it's an important conversation to have. It's, we've always had an open conversation about this. Um, My, our listeners know, you know, my story and, so the trauma I went through and what I had to, to work through. And, and you also made a, 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 um, you made a comment about community and tribe. Like that's something we mm. preach constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm right now I'm sitting, uh, at the mountain wellness recovery den. And that's, this is our physical location. This is where I hope people show up to, to be part of a community, be part of a tribe because, um, just as you mentioned, we all have had a certain amount of trauma in our life. Um, everybody goes through it or everybody uh, deals with it in different ways, but mm-hmm. having a, a tribe, having a community um, and all working towards a common goal together. And, and in this case, it's, you know, health and wellness. And it's, it's the most important part. I mean, it's, it, it goes back thousands of years. Tribe is, we, we need tribe. And, and I think the, that while the internet's doing this great thing right now where we're able to talk and it, and it has all of these benefits, mm. nothing replaces physically being next to someone. Mm. Yeah, right. And, it, and I think that when you look at the fields that we're all involved in and around, we can probably all identify somebody who's a total asshole. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yep. And... Mm. And th- when I went through the stress continuum sort of training and sort of awareness of what's going on with it, I suddenly looked at that person in a totally different way. Mm. Because on, on rescues or in training or what have you, I, I hadn't maybe credited that maybe they're in that injured critical part mm. because of their job mm. and their life and where they're sure. at. And right. I needed to be kinder and less judgmental. And... When you're in green, assholes are assholes, right? But when you're in red, assholes, we're all assholes when we're in red. <laughs> right. And it's that sort of willingness to be like human and, and yeah. forgiving. And, mm. I, and I, 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 I aspire to that. I'm not there yet, right? I'm not that, I'm not that pure. Like, I am, I am flawed. Sure. And it's like, to me, um, I can aspire to that being kinder. It is easier to be kinder than to be mean. <laughs> Yes. And I think with the world we live in, to sit with somebody and just listen to them is an act of kindness. Mm. And, it's, it, and it's therapeutic because someone's finally listening. Yeah. And I, I think what you said there was like you want this place, physical place where people can come to, where they feel safe. That's another thing that's safe environment to talk about stuff and, and, and it be physical. Mm. That's yep. so important as well because it's essentially coming home. And in yep. it, 
in this world that we move everywhere, like I spent my whole life traveling. Mm. I got married like five years ago. It's been great. I have a home. Like I have this place and uh, planted some roots. I, I, roots, <laughs> yeah. right? And then, and then you have this sort of tribe, this family, this mm -hmm. you, you shared. You uh, you have this place you can you can be based based out of, and that's all that people are looking for. They're, they're looking for this security. They're looking Connection, for this safety. part of something. Yeah, yep. so true. And it, uh, uh, so um, I worked for years with Outward Bound. You develop deep, deep connections with people because you go through intense situations with them mm -hmm. over long periods. I did fifty-eight day programs in the backcountry wow. with people, that's and badass. You, you know each other on a level that's probably more than a spouse <laughs> exactly. in, in a lot of ways family. because they're like, yeah, like they know you inside <laughs> out and they know you inside out forever because they've seen you at the stress end and they've seen you at the fun <laughs> <Totally>. end. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine's was uh, rang up yeah, yesterday because they needed a little bit of support and they went to their to the five of us who did a uh, an Arctic expedition in 1999, we did a 600-kilometer trip on the bonnet plume into the peel up towards the Arctic Circle. And it's this intense shared experience. And he reached out to us from the airport and said, hey, you out there? And we all wrote, bam, bam, bam. We wrote mm -hmm. back immediately, and we're, we're there. And that's what I aspire everybody to have. Mm, yeah. Is that connection. Not a brotherhood, a sisterhood. Family is a really good word for me, mm -hmm. and like that's what everybody deserves. Every child deserves it. Every adult deserves it. And you're right. I think we lose that at different parts and times in our lives. Maybe some have never had that, and uh, and then also when we, I think most of us here right now in this conversation realize when we do have it, we can see the difference. Yeah, and I think you. We're all searching, you know, we're all, we're all trying to figure out how to get through life. And that's a great unifier for the world is like, we're all struggling. Um, except for maybe Jeff Bezos, <laughs> but he's, he gets, he, I'm happy with him in space. That's a great thing. Um, but like for us who are firmly rooted on the earth, yeah, yeah. like, it's incredibly empowering to look over and be like, that person's struggling, yeah, that person's right? struggling, that person has got it right. Like, it's a great unifier. Wow, so true. We're so yeah, we, ordinary. We need each other. We need each yeah. other. And, and yeah, that's what it comes about. One of uh, Mike and I, a mentor that we have, Mark Devine, a 20 year retired SEAL commander, um, he talks about that. You know, you can't get through life without a team. Like, you, you you need a family you need a tribe like this is this is part of the human experience so and uh mm. and unfortunately i i know like in the the veterans community a lot of them they do the opposite you know in those traumatic situations or or the the post-traumatic situations they they run away they you know they go to they move to places like montana and hide away um and but really, the, the most important is to get connected and, and be part of that tribe. Right. And, and I think it's sort of legitimizing why they're angry, legitimizing why they feel disconnected, legitimizing yeah, why all are they those running things. away? Totally. Like, like, you, like, yep. 
it's it's without judgment like we don't need to i i've dealt with a number of incidents where someone has ended their life Mm. and i went into the first one and i was i had this sort of harp i had this sort of shadow of like ooh judgment like ooh why did they do it they, they've hurt everybody that they were around and like ooh how selfish it was and it was totally unnecessary to have that level of judgment and it was it was it was wrong because mm. I, I was putting all my values on this this act that somebody had carried out right and i just had to have compassion and empathy for those affected and for the person who ended their life because they felt yep. that was their only solution. Mm. And we just need to be judgment-free. We just need to be kind. It sounds trite, no, no, but... No, 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 but, uh, but no, my it's... question is, because Corey brought up them running away in a way to Montana or isolating themselves to a degree, and is that because there's no safe place for what they've experienced, that they don't feel there is <laughs> any safe place to go? To, to... Yeah, so like you're on that end of the stress continuum yeah. you're hiding right. out you're withdrawn you can't deal with the complexity gotcha. you can't deal with people telling you to get better you can't deal with fighting with the va for your medication you can't deal yep. all these Understood. things it's 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 so much to expect somebody to deal with that mm. and these people are young yeah. right they're not like they're not like 40 and 50 they're not my, my age too. they're yep. like 18 yeah. and they're 22 wow and they and they they're faced with life changing injury or trauma, and they they they've they've lived a lifetime of horrible experiences, and 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 we expect them to come back and get better. Like when people came back from the theaters of war in the Second World War or the First World War, they were on troop ships for long periods of time coming across the ocean. Mm. And they were depressurizing at that moment and they were chatting to each other and they had some transitional phase, but it was spread over weeks and months to get home. Now they're in Germany and back in Michigan in 24 hours. Yep. Whoa. And it, we expect in a, in a non combat zone when they're used to being hyper aroused, sympathetic nervous system is just like right. ramped up for six month deployment. Right. All of a sudden they're full they're of adrenaline to, you know, at any moment. Sure. Be, They've switched to cortisol. They've switched to the, 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 you've got adrenaline that is fight and flight, and then it switches off and you feel better. Long term, you've got cortisol release, which has physiological impacts, like you start to gain weight. That's what you see in people who are faced by war, famine, extreme long term trauma. And we have millions of people in that position. Not just here, like mm. in the countries that have been impacted sure. by war, by allies, by the, the the children. Like it's if you want to talk about an epidemic, mm. like it's an inability to talk about traumatic response in a way that allows treatment to happen. Wow. And it, it, it that's the tragedy in all of this. Is that yeah. the shell shocked people who were probably incredibly damaged in the First World War, who were shot for desertion, right? They were shot as cowards, were actually incredibly damaged by their experience. Like my granddad did 18, I think 18 months or 14 months in the trenches, which is unusual in the First World War. He was kind of moody and a bit grumpy. Um, But you know what? At 18, he basically watched his entire battalion get killed. Mm. Yeah. He lived into his 90s. 
But at 18, he never dealt with that. That was his life. And like my parents grew up in, you know, affected by the Second World War and bombings. And my dad talks, my dad wrote a book at 90. He wrote a book about growing up in an orphanage in Birmingham. And he talks about going down the street and looking at the houses that had been bombed and knowing people who lived in those houses as a kid. Mm. So it's, it, I, we, it goes back to that same thing, like non-judgmental, be kind. We can make the better, the world a better place pretty quickly. Right. With that. Yep. Cause you don't, you just don't know what your neighbor's been through and we have no, no right to judge at all. Um, wow. God, well, well said. Not, yeah. Not straight off the bat. Like, leave it for a little bit until they get on Twitter and say terrible things. But, <laughs> like, but like at, the, at that initial meeting, you know, it's, there's a rush to judgment. For sure. Particularly around trauma and loss. It's like, America is in denial that death happens. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of there's so much fear. There's a, there's yeah. so much fear around it, and gotcha. people when other people die, they kind of it's you're forced to face your own mortality. Uh, you question it, and if you're not comfortable, and and whether that's faith or you know you've had that conversation or had that thought with yourself before, it can be yeah, it it can be a hard a hard one to face. And, and so there's a duty to actually be there for people when they need, need that support. Like when somebody dies, you don't walk away from them. You have availability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go, oh, I don't want to bother them at this time of grieving and mourning. Actually, they may well want to be bothered, but give them the choice. It's binary. Yes or no. That's very interesting yep. you say that because I had that with a friend too where I, I, I not a close friend but close enough and I and I felt like I had nothing to offer them. I had no tools in my toolbox and so rather than go to them and try to talk to them I stayed away which is you know what I'm saying I mean I and every situation is different but I understand what you're saying you've given me a different perspective on to, to be witness yeah you don't have to even like, necessarily say anything yeah some of the most powerful thing is to sit in the room right. that happens a lot where you literally sit with families and you're there for them and you're just witnessing right and then yep. 45 minutes in they tell this outrageous story about what a party animal the guy who died was and you are laughing because he's so outrageous this guy was so outrageous like i'm just like it was christmas and like the guy had the most amazing stories and like it was a celebration of how nutty this guy was <laughs> and it, that's what we're there to witness yeah. and it, you shouldn't you shouldn't make the decision for someone you should allow them you should empower them to make the decision of what they need that's awesome so your book what's the name of your book my book is called when accidents happen here we go right here yeah, that's what got me so interested in talking to you. Awesome. Is, and it's 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 a manual, like it's not the manual. It's a manual to think about how to set up a family liaison program, things to think about. It's it's meant to spark the conversation and be a tool for somebody starting out or a backup for a practitioner. And it's meant to be ripped apart and hmm. morphed to fit what your program jurisdiction needs. It's it's not prescriptive. It, the, the idea is it's 
here's a bunch of ideas and here's a progression. What do you want to do with it? Yeah. And I, yeah, and I, it was my, it was my pandemic project and my, my sister wrote a book as well. Like I, my dad wrote a book, my sister wrote a book. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, we all wrote books and like, um, yeah. And it's, it, I use it as a text for my workshops. I, I just went to Moab and taught the national park service module. So a lot of what we discussed today, um, a lot of the, the methodologies, principles, practices are, are in this book. Yeah. And it, it, it goes all the way through from why do you do it? What are the applications are, how it fits into the instant command system to do, Oh, how do I script? What do I need to think about when I'm doing a Zoom call over a phone call over meeting in person? And then it covers this sort of, if you have a discovery, like what happens when you have a significant find as a clue, are they alive or dead? How do you, how are you part of that notification? Mm, yeah. And then self-survival, how do you, how do you look after yourself? But I tell, I tell a lot of stories about how it's impacted me. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you've pulled on... You, your experience um there's no substitute for experience so i i i would imagine it's just such a great i know it's an amazing resource and for anybody out there our listeners whether they're first responders uh you know military search and rescue where can they where can they find it it's available from all good bookshops but uh there's a link on my website www.moosemutler.com uh, and it's got through Amazon. I did a Kindle desktop publish, so oh, awesome. you can get it there. And we'll we'll put it in the the show notes for you guys too. Um, Moose, man, I can't like this is such an important topic. I'm I'm glad Mike reached out to you and and got you on the show. This is something that we um, just it's close to our heart. Um, I've always said starting Mountain Wellness, uh, being a health and wellness company and brand or anybody that works in the health and wellness space, it's, it's, it's a, it's a service and yeah. you can't expect others to just figure it out and know. Um, and I do believe the mental health and, you know, the, the, uh, a lot of the things we discussed today around trauma is absolutely, um, very important discussion to have and, and putting resources and having a conversation, about it is important so thank you for your work and and thank you for what you do and we know how hard it is to write a book or, or put anything together right. so um it's impressive that you, you that you did that so thank you for your time thank you for your service and dedication to such an important topic yeah and well th thank you very much for the invite um i really appreciate the chance to meet you both and I'm a resource out there. If I can help at all with any of your programs, feel free to give me a call. But uh, as I said, thank you for hosting and giving me the opportunity to talk. Absolutely. And when we're up in your area, we're definitely going to have to connect and you might have to show us around a little bit. And I would uh, love likewise. to. Yeah. And likewise, if you're out in Southwest Montana, Helena, this is uh, you got a place to stay. Um, I'd love to, to show you around out here. It's a beautiful, beautiful place in the country, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you. Absolutely. Specifically for service to families, because I, I, I can tell over the lot, over this conversation that you've 
done your best in whatever capacity i think you know you have to feel everything out as as it happens but to be there for for family members in a very difficult time that's an incredible testimony to service that goes all the way back to i remember your childhood from the beginning of the conversation and that's an incredible thing to to give yeah. to the world i mean that's a that's a it's a hard conversation to have. This is very difficult for me to to put to articulate these kind of things. And you've done an amazing job at that for us. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I would I would agree. All right, um, that was a good one, guys. You can catch us on the socials: Facebook Mountain Wellness, uh, Instagram Mountain Wellness Podcast. Uh, thanks for all the five star reviews, the shout outs. Um, we love you guys and uh, hope you guys have a good week and we'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. The information provided on the Mountain Wellness Podcast is for educational purposes only and not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult a medical professional or healthcare provider if you're seeking medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.